and I take exquisite care of myself. I'm very well fed, very well nourished, as rested as I can be. My energy is my gold and I spend it very wisely. This podcast does not constitute medical advice. All changes surrounding medications, diet and exercise should be made in consultation with a professional who can assess your unique health circumstances. Welcome to the Rheumatoid Solutions Podcast with Clint Patterson, helping you to live an easier, healthier, and happier life. When we have an autoimmune disease, the emotional side of it and the mental side of it can feel overwhelming. And so today I've got a very special guest. Her name is Kerry Jeffrey. She's a clinical hypnotherapist, a counselor, and life coach. And Kerry's going to help us understand some of the insights around having an autoimmune condition because she herself has four. So she's uniquely positioned to provide these insights from both her personal experience and from working with a great number of people with autoimmune conditions and help us to have some actionable steps, things that we can take to improve our mental health and our emotional state dealing with chronic disease. Kerry, what an honor. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me, Clint. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. Yeah, and we don't get as many Aussies on the uh, on this podcast, so it's nice to have a fellow Australian with me. Tell us, how did you become chronically ill and what was that experience like for you before we get into some of your guidance? Yes, it was um, it was a real shock to me because prior to that, I was one of those people who said that I never got ill. And it was interesting when I was talking to my doctor later, she said, that's actually not a good sign. It means you've always had a really overachieving immune system. So I was going through perimenopause at the time. And I understand, especially from a lot of women, that major hormonal events can often coincide with becoming chronically ill as the shifts in the body symptoms. Uh, systems go. So I was looking up all the symptoms I was having and I just thought I'm having the worst experience of perimenopause ever. And I was visibly looking worse and worse and worse. Like I was looked like I was aging, I was lacking in energy, I was getting pain in my body, massive hot flushes, all the things going on until it kind of got to the point where the symptoms I was having no longer fit into what was supposed to be perimenopause. And then on top of that, I got what I thought was a really, really bad flu. And for someone who never really got sick, I kept waiting to get better, but I was getting worse and worse and worse. And I honestly, it was like the picture of Dorian Gray. I looked like I'd aged 10 years and I didn't recognize the person I was seeing in the mirror. And then one day I was literally sitting on the couch and I fell over sideways as my body couldn't hold itself up. And I thought, this is this is not right. And so I went and saw my then doctor and told him the symptoms and he took some blood tests and then he rang me up and said, oh, yes, I know what you've got and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's easily dealt with, um, you know, come in and it will get you sorted. And I said, what have I got? And he said, you've got thyroid disease. And at that time, Clint, I felt like I was dying. I was struggling to breathe. Um, I had 
barely any energy. I could barely speak. The brain fog was so intense. I lost simple words. So I had to point, like if I wanted the salt, I had to point because the word just wasn't there. Like, so I, I'd never been so sick in my life and I was terrified. And so basically he said, um, yes, you've got, you've got thyroid issues. So just take your little pill and get adapt to your new normal. And I'm like, yeah, it was Hashimoto's. He didn't even get that right. He was telling me I had Graves disease. And even with my brain fog, I thought, no, that's hyper. I'm hypo. So luckily, I, it was very easy to diagnose because the blood tests were so evident. Like my TSH was in the hundreds, you know, my thyroid levels were so low that they were barely there at all, which was why I was so sick. But I just got the feeling as I left, like when he said you knew normal, well, I couldn't work and I couldn't function and mm. I felt like I was dying and I mm. don't have a partner. I don't have any emotional support. I was a therapist then and I didn't know what was going to happen to me and I was in my mid-50s then and it was just, yeah, take this, take this tablet. And I'm like, but I'm, I'm in so much pain, like I can't stand, I'm just rolling anxiety symptoms. I was really, really suffering. And so I just thought, if I'm going to survive this, it's up to me, right? This guy's not going to help me. I've got to find something because if this has happened to me, right, there must be a way to either reverse it or to get some form of health and function back, right? Because it's totally. a process in the body. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yep. No, I, I, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just wanted to and have the same exact recollection. I felt if this suddenly happened to me, something has triggered it. Now I've got a first class honors degree in laser physics. And so my, not to say that to impress, but just to say that I've got a science background and nothing just happens in science or in the body spontaneously there's always a trigger and uh i worked backwards and it took me years to work out originally like the microbial intervention of antibiotics and 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 so on but but yes completely agree and so other than hashimoto's what else were you diagnosed with and how did all this make you feel emotionally yeah so initially um years earlier so when i was in my 40s and i was going through my second pregnancy um, well, I was trying to become pregnant then, and um, I kept having miscarriages. And so they did a blood test, and at that time, the disease antiphospholipid syndrome was just starting to come in. So this is over 20 years ago, and there was still a lot of contention whether it was a real disease-like or not. And so they passed me along to a professor of, of blood, right? I, I can't think of the technical term at the moment, but you know a what I mean. And hematologist, a professor of hematology, right? And so he diagnosed me with antiphospholipid syndrome. And he said that in my case, what was happening is the disease was causing blood clots to form on the placenta, which was choking off all the nutrients to the developing fetus and basically killing it. Right. So yeah. he diagnosed that. Mind you, I had a professor of obstetrics who completely disbelieved that I had that. So the two professors arguing is often the case in the medical profession, right? But 
because it was pregnancy specific, it was okay. Here's what you've got to do. You've got to take blood thinners, right? And if you become pregnant, you'll have to do that for the whole of the pregnancy and then six to eight weeks afterwards and you're going to be high risk and all of that sort of stuff. And so at that point, Clint, I was like, I said to my husband, like, I really don't know if I can put myself through this. Like, this is, this is a lot. And he said, of course, it's totally up to you. And the next day I realized I was late. And so I did mm. the pregnancy test. I was pregnant. Then I'm calling up the hospital saying, okay, I've got to come in. You've got to show me how to use the blood thinners, inject myself. And so it was all of through that. Then postpartum, I had to take the blood thinners, but luckily enough, it only seemed to bother me for that specific event, right? I've never had touchwood, deep vein thrombosis, blood clots, anything like that. So that was the first diagnosis, but I didn't really understand that it was autoimmune. Like they didn't mention that. And I think that's one of the issues you'd find with your your clients that have got rheumatoid arthritis, right? They don't tell you the significance of what autoimmunity is mm. and that it can leave you open unless you're, you know, trying to in some way mitigate it or prevent it to gathering other illnesses as you go on. Totally. Right. And as I'm sure you understand that while it feels like chronic illness happens like overnight, because that's how it felt to me, right? It felt like I, I went from well to healthy, but that wasn't the actual process. I mean, looking back with hindsight, I can see I've probably had this since I was a kid, right? When a whole lot of things happened that didn't make sense. Like I gained an enormous amount of weight. So I went from being like a normal sized child to an obese child. And I struggled with a lot of things, but as we're taught to do, like we we see it as, well, there must be something wrong with me, right? Maybe I'm lazy, maybe I'm not disciplined. So I think the seeds of everybody's chronic illness go back and it takes so many different events and things until finally the damage accumulates to the immune system and then the full-blown expression of the disease happens, right? Yeah. So. That was kind of that that experience. So because the antiphospholipid syndrome didn't create any problems in my life, I didn't have to do anything about it. Like they said, if you're ever going to do long distance plane travel or something, then yes, you know, we'll give you some blood thinners in case you get a DVP, uh, all of that sort of stuff. But apart from that, it didn't affect my life. So the Hashimoto's was the first time when chronic illness, I would say, really impacted me because I was disabled. I was physically and cognitively disabled. Mm. Right? I literally could not function. And so my worst case scenario, if I couldn't do anything about this, and at that stage, I didn't know what I could do about it, right, was to my kids to have to move out, put everything I own in storage and go and live with my elderly dad and try and get disability. Right? That's the worst case scenario I was facing at that stage. So I think that's the biggest emotional impact of chronic illness. Like when you get that diagnosis, there's no one to take you by the hand and say, here, Terry, here's what you can do. Like most doctors will just say, you've got it, accept it. If there's medication, have the medication. Of course, there's side effects of the medication. But that's it. You're, you're out the door and you're on your own. 
with a changed quality of life function, right, increased pain levels, worsening disability, because most autoimmune diseases, including rheumatoid arthritis, they're generally thought to be progressive. And then depending on the doctor who tells you the information, either they'll they'll tell you the worst case scenario, right, which is progressive, wheelchair, disability, not able to work, pain, you know, ongoing pain management, blah, 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 blah. Or they'll kind of fob you off and, and underplay it and go, oh, well, here's your medication choices. Go back. You decide which immunosuppressant you want to be on or we'll try and manage the pain, get on with your life. But you're left in the wreckage kind of sitting there thinking, where do I go? Right. And then as a therapist, when it happened to me and I'm like in grief, like, is my life over? Like it felt like I'd lost who I was and I'd lost the future I thought I was going to have because I was in a pretty good place in, in my career and I was writing a book and doing a whole lot of things. And now I'm looking at down the barrel of death and disability, right, not knowing what's going to happen to me. And I thought surely there must be therapists in this field, right? I mean, because this is, I'm, I got, had a lot of tools at that stage and I didn't know how to deal with what I was experiencing and I couldn't find anyone, right? So basically I've become the therapist coach I was looking for when chronic illness hit my life. And so since then, like about a year later, because Hashimoto's and celiac often coincide, we did the test and I had the antibodies to gliadin and I wasn't going to put myself through the, the test of having um, gluten and provocation test. I'm like, no, I've got the antibodies. I'm going to assume I've got the disease, right? And then so I had the antiphospholipid, I had the Hashimoto's, I had the celiac. And then almost three years ago, I suddenly started losing a significant amount of weight a whole lot of things were going on in my body. I ended up with a bowel obstruction. Um, so I became emaciated, uh, looked like a little genderless, frail, skinny little skeleton. Intensive care, a week later, type 1 diabetes. Good. So yeah. if that was that. Merry was Christmas. Quite, yes. And at that point, that was when I really started sort of saying to my version of God, like, isn't what really? <laughs> Isn't it enough? What I've got yeah. to deal with, and so at every every diagnosis, I've gone through that 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 same emotional adjustment, right? The shock, the denial. Then then how how do I deal with this? So here's another medication or something I've got to have. Here's another change I've got to make to my life. Here's another thing I'm now physically reliant on, especially as someone, you know, with type 1 diabetes, I am absolutely 100% dependent on insulin. And I've kind of seen, if I didn't have insulin, I've kind of seen how I'm going to die. And I can tell you, Clint, it's not a very pleasant way to go, right? So, and what I've found, I wanted to put myself out there because I knew this was so significant to me. And so I started informally talking to other people with chronic illness, like how did you cope? How did you find acceptance? How did you adapt to it, right? Emotionally, like what did you do? Because this has completely like destroyed 
my life. Like I don't know what's going to happen to me. I don't know how to cope with this and I don't know what to do because there's no direction. And then as a therapist, I kind of thought, I want to share my experiences because if I can help one person not go through what I went through, to feel so abandoned by the medical profession, to feel so, you know, without hope um, for the future with no direction on how I can even help myself, then, and I want people to understand because like then I knew about chronic illness. One of my cousins had Graves disease and I saw her suffer and I had tons of empathy but until it happened to me, I didn't yeah. get it. And you know that because you get it, right? Because it's one of those few experiences in life that unless you experience it, you've got no idea because you're trying to use frameworks as a healthy person or a non-chronically ill person like tired, uh, pain, um, lack of energy, sleepy shoes. And they're like, oh, yeah, right. like if I said, to you, like I said before we started recording, I didn't get a lot of sleep last night because I had low blood sugar issues. So I was up till two o'clock in the morning managing that. And I've still got to get up and work and stuff. So I'm not quite as sharp as I would like to be. If I said to somebody, yeah, I had a really rough night, they go, oh yeah, I know what you mean. The kids kept me up or, you know, and I'm like, you've got no idea. Like, because autoimmune tired is like at a cellular level. Right, you've got nothing in the tank, and there's no pushing yourself through it or mind over matter or any of that other stuff that we tell people, you know, suck it up. And no, it's you literally, your body can't, and they Love don't it. get it. Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm nodding enthusiastically and smiling as you can see, because autoimmune tide is whole different level. I found a photograph of myself on holiday in Fiji. Must be going back about twelve years that my my now wife took, and I was slumped over the bed with my head between my knees, and I was just like a, a jellyfish that had been pulled out of this ocean and slumped onto a rock, and that's how tired I used to get, especially on the drug methotrexate and one of the chemos chemotherapy drugs that you can take for rheumatoid. I was just so awful. Yeah. And and it's it's laughable to think that, you know, otherwise healthy people are uh, comparing that to being kept up for an hour or two with their children, of which we yeah. have many as well. So anyway, mm. you have such wisdom and personal experience in this area. I mean, what is the thing that you find that comes up the most with your clients that you like to address early on or something that's that's something that comes up pretty often and you think let's start with this yes so the biggest issue overall and it's interesting Clint because I just had this tested because I'm in the process of developing my first online you know course and I'm just doing one module because you know I do still have I do have an invisible disability I do have limited physical resources like I'm managing four illnesses so I thought I'll just do one not a whole course that's too much but just one I'll put it to my community what I came up with the two top issues so one of them is dealing with doctors 
because I'm not sure about your experience and your community's experience, but medical gaslighting, even getting a diagnosis, is so prevalent in in our health system, right? Getting believed in the first place, getting a diagnosis, you know, dealing with pain, like getting people to understand the pain level that you're dealing with and not accuse you of drug seeking and all of those other kinds of things. So dealing with doctors was one, but the second one was acceptance. And an overwhelming majority voted for acceptance because so many people equate accepting means I'm giving up and I'm not trying to find any more solutions. I'm accepting my fate. I'm rolling over and that's it. The disease has now got me and I'm done. That's how a lot of people see acceptance, right? But with normal kinds of things that we understand in grief, right? Say if somebody dies, everybody understands that. Right. It means that that person is now gone and we're going through the long process of adapting to not having them physically here and present, all of that sort of stuff. But people understand that, right? Or if you're, it has a visible accident, like if you're in a car accident, right? You've had a spinal cord injury, there's a visible change. People understand that. If you say, my pet died or I got fired, people understand that. But when you say, I'm grieving the changes because now I've got chronic illness. They don't get it. You're right. They don't get it. And they expect you to keep fighting because that's the model we have, right? But the model we have is you get sick and you get better or you get sick and you die, right? And if you've got something that, that could potentially be cured like cancer, then you have to fight it right? So you are the warrior, you've got to fight it and that's your job. And if you're not seen to be doing that, well, you're giving up, right? But chronic illness, while it does lead to higher incidences of early death, right? It can kill people. Generally, it's not a terminal illness. So people have no concept of some getting sick and your body doesn't just get over it, and that it's something that you now need to manage whatever interventions you have, right? And it's not just physically manage, it's emotionally manage because like I've spoken to a lot of people with rheumatoid arthritis, I had a lot of clients with rheumatoid arthritis, and pain wears you down. And if you never know what level your pain you're going to be dealing with, like if you can wake up one morning and your wrist is in a flare, right, and it's got to be splintered and, and kept and it, it's like, you know, trying to protect this tender thing, right, or if you wake up and it's in your feet and now you can't walk or you can't drive a car, right, and you don't know how to manage it, that's terrifying, because pain grinds you down, right? So you've got the fatigue, you've got, you've got the pain, you've got that anticipation, right? I'm feeling okay at the moment, but I can't count on that because what if tomorrow? Because, you know, the thing that people don't understand about autoimmune diseases is we can be doing everything right and there's no perfect way, right? Everybody's different, but we can be doing everything right but external factors can trigger, right? So you get another virus, 
you have a, a death in the family, you're under a high stress period of something in your life, right? There's the trigger. So what you've got to learn to do is be able to kind of calmly manage your flares and kind of be prepared for that. So it makes it really difficult to plan for the future, right? And so it's not a discrete grief because the grief of chronic illness, and this is where acceptance comes in, is that there can often be so many changes, especially as we age or if you get another illness, it's like a constant process of accepting. So if I'm feeling good and I'm going through a period where I feel like I'm in remission and I'm feeling good and then something triggers me and I'm in a flare, right, the fear of every flare is if, what if I don't come out of it, right? What if this is the new level now, right? Because sometimes it can feel like that all the changes and all the sacrifices, maybe they're just not working anymore, right? And then what if the drug stops working or what if, so it's that constant process of accepting not only the ebbs and flows of the day, right, because you never quite know sometimes what you're going to get, but dealing with the uncertainty and that affects relationships, right, because the disease can make you unreliable. So you're not in yourself, you're reliable. But, you know, sometimes it's just I can't, right? I really wanted to do that thing. I really want to catch up with that person, do that activity, and I can't now. And I know if I push myself, right, and this is where acceptance comes into it, right, if you can't accept the physical reality that, okay, right at the moment my body's not up to that and, and honour that and protect that, and if you think I don't want my friend to be upset with me, right, you're going to push through. And I'm sure you know, Clint, what happens when we ignore what's going on with our body and we consistently push through, mm. right? So that's an acceptance as well, right, that I can no longer be the friend at the level I was before the illness. I can no longer be the partner, the parent, the, the colleague, the employee that I was before. And I've yeah, got to find what's possible for me. You, you've really eloquently described a lot of the fear and anxiety aspects of this disease or these diseases, these, as you put it, uh, invisible diseases. And the acceptance one is an interesting one. Now, I'm just going to speak personally, and we can just you know freestyle here a little bit on this as two people with um, autoimmune experience. So there are some areas of my life that I accept, and there are some areas of my life that I accept for now, but I'm hell-bent on changing. So I have different a di different labeling for different things. So for example, the week I was diagnosed, I was playing a game of touch football, and I tore my ACL, which puts professional sports stars out of their game for 12 months. What happened was the inflammation immediately went to my left knee and I had a much more aggressive impact on my cartilage and swelling and everything because that knee was so compromised. I wasn't able to use it properly and 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 uh, it was a welcome home for 
rheumatoid arthritis. Consequently, my left knee was eligible for a knee replacement within three years of diagnosis. A disaster. Mm. It took 15 years or so until I eventually had it done because I persevered and worked around the problem. However, my left knee, now having had a replacement, I know that I cannot run. I accept that and I don't fight that and I don't try and push that. And in fact, it doesn't bother me that much because I wasn't able to run on the bad knee anyway. So I feel like 15 years ago was the last, or when I tore my ACL was the last time that I actually ran, ran the way that we think about when we go on a park job, right? So there's acceptance there. And there's acceptance in some of the permanent damage that I have from my joints from the really inflamed years that I've had in the past. I accept that I don't love that. I look at my my affected fingers. Um, what's well, mostly just that. I don't care about my elbows. It's weird. Like my elbows don't straighten, but they're so functional and they're so strong. I accept those two and I don't care about that. But I think the only thing with my fingers, which still work perfectly, but there is some disfigurement from the over the years. And whilst they serve me perfectly to everything I need to do, I I guess it's the feeling that other people will look at my fingers and say, oh, there's something not quite right about that. And it's that feeling of judgment and maybe that feeling of, what's the word, Uh, having some kind of, um, you know, disability on, and that's disrespectful to those with a a genuine disability, um, comparing my fingers to that. But It's like a version of that that rises to significant level because I don't have a greater version that they have. In my life, this is a problem for me. I know that when I was in an inflamed state, which has occurred to me significantly twice for very long periods of time, particularly the first one went on years and years and years and years, that I didn't want to see anybody. I was like, Mm. I wanted to live in a cave. And I, throughout that entire time to today, I've been in an entertainment business, like uh, doing stand-up comedy. I've worked in like 13 countries doing comedy and made a great career out of that. And yet I didn't want to be seen by anybody. I felt like I'm I'm, almost like I'm a wounded animal. Please leave me alone. I'm going to hide and try and work out how I can make myself feel better through any means possible. And I just want to put my life on hold. And Melissa and I, my wife, we lived in this kind of status for many years because you're just wounded and you're worried and you're tired. And you mentioned all those things so well and fearful, so fearful about the future because it's a progressive ongoing disease again, as you said. Yeah. So you must really have some very challenging calls. People who contact you must be sometimes um, quite distraught. Um, Can you give us some insights into what you might say to someone who was like I was at that time in the worst state and picked up the call and said, Kerry, this is what's going on for me? It's miserable. What, What might you say to Clint back in 2008? I think the first thing that I would be saying to Clint back in 2008 is you've just lost yourself, mate. You know, your identity, it's a loss of identity and that's what people don't understand. Plus it's a loss of integrity in your body, right, the way you look, the way it functions, 
And it's a constant reminder of the change. Like you said, when you look at your fingers, you're aware of it. Nobody would want that to happen, right? And it's there. So it's a constant reminder and it's those little micro things. And so the main thing that I want to do on my discovery calls and with my work with my clients is normalize the experience because basically what you're going through and what I went through is a unique experience that only other people with chronic illness will ever understand, right? It's the club nobody wants to be in, right? But, and because it's not talked about, it's not recognized, we don't have conversations in our communities about the emotional impacts of chronic illness, but we all know people who have it. We don't know what it means. I'm sure we've all grown up knowing, you know, granny had arthritis or, you know, auntie might have had MS or another one had, you know, Crohn's or whatever. But we saw them, yeah, maybe suffering, but they soldiered on. They didn't talk about it. There was no awareness. Like, what does it mean? Do, do we understand that it's ongoing and, and progressive or we don't, right? So it's not. It's like the orphan child of medicine. We don't talk about it. And the biggest issue for people with chronic illness, as we said before, if you try and say to people, I'm really struggling, like I'm exhausted, and they'll go, oh, come on, mate, you know, you just, just got to get some more sleep, right? Just, just rest. We all get tired. Push through. They're completely negating your experience. So you don't get the empathy and support. You get the, have you tried, right? Now, don't let the illness define you, right? Don't give in to this, Clint. You've got to keep fighting it. Whereas I'm the voice saying everything you're feeling is absolutely normal and appropriate for somebody going through your experience, All right? That's it. And that's what all my clients will say if they've been to sought therapy and they said they don't get it. They get everything else I'm talking about because even if you look, say you did a search as I did before this, you know, I wanted to see if there was anything out there on the emotional issues of rheumatoid arthritis. You know all you're going to see? Depression and anxiety are usually significant in patients with rheumatoid arthritis and stress needs to be dealt with do they tell you how to do it right of course somebody in pain right with a a diagnosis that's radically changing their body that can't be cured right that could lead them to increasing disability yeah you're going to feel really upbeat and positive and happy and anxious with unrelenting pain like I honestly, it just, that's why I do what I do Mm. because that's, that's stupidity. Mm. That Mm. is absolute stupidity. Of course, somebody with a sickness and a disease is going to be feeling anxious Mm. and depressed because you're grieving the loss of yourself. You're grieving the person you were. Like for you saying you had a life, right? You're traveling the world doing stand-up comedy. Now, at that point, you didn't know if that was ever going to be possible for you again. Absolutely. Right? There is no certainty. Everything's on hold and there's no experts out there to come and say, Clint, do this. 
do this and you'll get this percentage of quality of life back. Do this and you'll be able to have that. Like often you're thinking, my life is over, my career is over, my ability to earn for myself is over, my quality of life is over and all I've got to look forward to is more pain, more disability and what the heck are these drugs that I'm taking doing to my body? Because the doctors, right, they overestimate the ability of the drug, like the positives, and they undersell the implications for what it can do. I mean, I've worked with people that because of the drug they've been on for their chronic illness now have liver disease caused by the medication. There's so much to weigh up, right? And you've got to be your own advocate. You've got to be your own researcher. You've got to be your own dietitian. You've got to be your own biologist and chemist, right? It's all on you. Yeah. So the emotional load is huge. And the advocacy that you've got to do, like I know more about my diseases than most doctors. Yeah, yeah, totally. I call it the CEO of your own health problem. And exactly. This is this is why we do what we do too. So uh, I don't know how much you know about what we do, but our business is called Rheumatoid Solutions. So our whole approach is to deal with the issues that come about with this disease. So whilst your expertise lies in the emotional, mental, mindset side of things, our expertise, the emphasis of, of intervention that we play is via all the, uh, the lifestyle choices that people can make around diet, exercise, supplementation, exposure to, to, to sunlight, green space, and improved habits around sleep and so forth. And these, in turn, we then see as a side benefit or a consequence, then improve the mental health as well. Because when we have a plan, hope returns. And when we yeah. see a a path of success, we feel empowered. And that alone is stress reducing. It is. And when we engage in more physical activity and we eat foods that support our gut health, those two equally improve mental health. And so we are both in the game of improving the emotional, mental mindset mm. of patients with these conditions. Mm. And you're right. Um, we need to we need to adopt a this is on me. Uh, I like the phrase if it's meant to be, it's up to me. And it's yeah. one of the sort of quotes in the top of one of my chapters. And it uh, it is certainly not something that is understood. and and you know, it's like when someone does get cancer, the community come together and sometimes there's even fundraisers and activities, and it's an endless effort of, collective enthusiasm and support around that individual. But when someone exactly. has an autoimmune condition, there is almost an unspoken concerns and whispers whilst they've gone to the bathroom about, gee, they don't look too good now, or um, I don't know what they're taking, but I think that drug's pretty bad. You're absolutely right. It's more of a, it's, there's no understanding. And it is weird. It doesn't fit into a category because our body's designed to heal itself, but with autoimmunity, it doesn't. Mm. We're not in the way that it does, not the way it should that we expect compared to cutting ourselves and getting a scar and, and mm. healing over. And it's not the terminal aspect like the cancer. 
It's it's definitely weird, Kerry. And you know why I think it's weird? I think it's weird because I don't think it's meant to be. And I think these autoimmune things have happened only in the last 100, 150 years as we've migrated into Western living, into a world of antibiotics and increased sanitization and a deviation from eating close to the environment, close to bacterial sources from the soil in the foods that we eat, a distancing from sunlight. We only spend 9% of our lives outdoors. Mm. 9%. And when we used mm. to live outdoors with just some little cave or something to cover us for periods of time for protection, we've distanced ourselves from the world that we live in mm. through our artificial interventions. And whether you've got four autoimmune diseases, one autoimmune disease, I think that it's an unnatural disease or diseases for the human race. And that's why we haven't evolved to understand it. Mm. It's a new category. Of disease, mm. a new category of trying to comprehend it. Mm. And see, the other aspect to that, as somebody who worked in a university for, for many years, right, and is very aware of the funding mechanism and all of that, what you're seeing, right, until all the research has stopped the silo of research money for multiple sclerosis, research money for RA, until they all get together and say, research money for the autoimmune. And that's what I even have to explain to a lot of my clients because I do not have a thyroid disease, right? I do not have a pancreatic disease. I have an autoimmune system that is attacking different aspects of my body. It is my autoimmune system that is faulty. Until they get together and say, we're funding all of the research money into why the immune system is attacking self. We're not going to see any change, any benefits, anything. Like the interesting thing for me, getting diabetes, type 1 diabetes at the age that I did, and that was a fallacy. I, I falsely believed it was juvenile. That's what it was called in Australia, right? Juvenile diabetes. So you think it happens to kids. So I actually. I was in denial for the first month that I had type 1 diabetes because it didn't make sense. Nobody in my family has it. It only happens to kids. You know, adults don't get it. No. Anybody can acquire type 1 diabetes at any age. Unfortunately, it's often misdiagnosed for decades as type 2 because doctors still expect it to be a juvenile disease. So people struggle for years being on, on type 2 medications that don't help keep getting blamed for their, they're not dieting or exercising properly. They're not looking after themselves because their blood sugars are going up. They don't do the antibody test, right? They don't bother because they make the assumption it's type two. So when I got type one diabetes, I thought, well, at least there's been decades of research. Type one diabetes is very well known. So there should be heaps of really valid information. No, there's not. There's absolutely not. The advice that I was given in a hospital how to manage my type 1 diabetes, like when you're, you're talking to people who said, yeah, I developed it as a kid and the endocrinologist said, let the big kids be kids. Cake, you know, before anything. And here I am at 30 years old, blind, with my feet amputation, yeah. amputated because my parents put the doctor's advice ahead of the fact that my body can no longer process carbohydrates, right? 
and that I'm at risk of dying because I'm going to eat a standard diet, right? I'm going to have to take massive amounts of insulin and insulin is a dangerous drug. Right? Too much insulin and you will, you will die. It's a medical emergency, right? So the information, the misinformation, the ignorance of doctors, I was just, mm. I couldn't believe that. And I've heard like old timers that have been living with the disease for decades. They said, when I got diagnosed 40 years ago, the doctors were saying a cure is five years away. <laughs> yeah. And they've been so- saying that ever since. Yeah, I asked about stem cells back in 2006 when my first rheumatology appointment. Let me ask you this and then we'll, and and let me ask you two questions. First of all, who would be the best sort of candidate for you if you would uh, be if someone's listening to this and they I'd like to share and talk to Kerry, I could really deal with some help in this issue. Just briefly, what would the sort of ideal candidate for you be? The someone the type of person that you could best help? Yes. So the ideal candidate for me is basically someone who knows they're struggling and they've tried everything and they can't they can't get a handle on it. So generally, from what I've found, when you get chronic illness, it will show up every crack in your life. So all the things you've been papering over while you were healthy. So your relationships, your employment, your family, your, your health habits, all of those things, right? Because you no longer ignore it. So someone who feels they want to be understood, right? Because they're feeling blamed. So many of us are blamed and shamed. So many of us in our own families, people don't believe we have an actual illness unless they can see it. And even then, right? So you get told you're lazy, right? You're using the illness as an excuse. You're not trying hard enough. In fact, in some particular religious cultures, the people are told they're in a state of sin. And that's why they're sick. So they've got to get right with God and pray harder, right? And there's that lack of understanding and support. And in order to move, to shift to empowered, right, you need to feel validated that it's not you, right? You're not weak, right? You're not lacking discipline. You're not lazy. You're a person suffering with a life-changing event for which you're not getting the support that rallies around for people. So I work very much skills-based, right? So I'll teach people, my clients, a new emotional framework so they understand what they're responsible for and what they're not, right? I teach them my key emotional tools to get that right mindset so you're not stuck in self-sabotage, right? So that you know how to make a change because what you're doing with your program and what I did, because I changed every facet of my life, firstly from desperation, right, because I would have done anything, right? If they said, you can fix yourself by eating sea sponges, I would have eaten sea sponges three times a day. But after, because of hope, right, and wanting that agency that the body breaks down for a reason, right? We're not a Western diet is wrong. All the things that you said, like the stress, the pressure to achieve, 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 do, 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 feel emotionally responsible for everybody. Like most people deal with guilt, stress, manipulation, pressure, feelings of failure, not good enough on a daily basis, right? And when you've got chronic illness, you don't have the energy to keep pushing through anymore. So someone who realizes, look, I've given it a good go, 
I can't wrap my head around this. I want to make changes. I want to fix my, I want better relationships. I want better communication. I want to be able to advocate for myself. I want to make the changes because I know it's all on me, but I want that now to be an empowered feeling rather than a burden like I'm a victim. Nobody's going to help me. Please, 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 someone, you know, give me a drug or give me a solution or give me something because I'm just feeling so lost and adrift and grieving, right? And I want to feel back in control of my life. Because chronic illness, you lost control of everything. And the certainty that we had before, right, the future we thought we were going to have, the things we thought we were going to do, even the holidays or the trips we had planned, suddenly all that's out the window, right? And as human beings, we don't do well with certainty, uncertainty, right? So someone who, who wants the support, wants the understanding, is willing to take responsibility and learn, right, new tools, do things differently and know the right reasons to make the choices because change is hard. We all say that, but we don't really acknowledge it as a truth. Like you know yourself, Clint, right? You've got to have the right motivation, right? You've got to be able to stick to it. You've got to be able to measure if something's working or not. Right. And you've got to have that feeling of hope and determination, right? To be able to to think, no, there there is a way. Yeah. Right. Exactly. There, there is something I can do. Even if the only thing I can do, the only power I have, is how I choose to see myself in my situation. Yeah, because so many people feel feel like a burden. Exactly. Okay. My last question for you. Well, I've got uh, last question, and I like to ask this of everyone with an autoimmune condition. Have you looked back and 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 tried to identify a potential trigger early in your life? Like, were you cesarean birth, or were you not breastfed, or were you um, given antibiotics as a young child, or took antibiotics as a teenager? Do any of the above apply? Not all of them in in that aspect. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the um, adverse child experience research that's been done. So what it was a huge collection of data, and what they found is that children that had adverse um, experiences in childhood, things like um, neglect, right, growing up in an abusive family, having a very sick or addicted parent, you know, significant um, lack of money, access to resources and stresses have a higher correlation with growing up, among other things, to get chronic illness. Because one of the things we do know about all diseases, which is why it's mentioned everywhere with no advice on how to fix it, is stress makes everything worse. And then everything you were saying about lifestyle, lack of connection to nature, the way that we eat, the expectations placed on them. So I score quite high on the A score, right? right? That I w- did have uh, was a vaginal birth, right? Was breastfed, but very high stress, right? Environment um, as a, an empathic, highly sensitive child felt the pain of the world. Felt very responsible. I experienced parentification. 
in um, in growing up. So I've experienced some significantly stressful and traumatic events. Plus, like I said, I think the seeds, because autoimmune does run in the family, right, if we go back, right, um, some of my cousins, we've all got about three of us have got different ones, really, really bad celiac to the point if he even touches it, he'll be, could be in hospital, right? My other cousin's got grave, so an auntie's um, now being diagnosed with something, autoimmune rheumatoid arthritis and things like that. So it's definitely in the mm-hmm. family. So I think it's a mixture of everything mm-hmm. coming together. I think I definitely had celiac. I do buy into quite a bit of the leaky gut research on the development. I really do think that that is part of the formation, you know, where the gut lining is is leakily and the things come through. I I think that's a part of it. And our body adapts and adapts and adapts until it can't anymore. And that's when the disease really expresses. But the damage has been done, I think, decades before we're even aware of it. Because that's the thing, as human beings, we're incredibly resilient and adaptable right? So we just keep adapting and adapting and adapting, right? One of the the things that I find in medicine is we expect people 30 and 40 years old to experiencing the pain of aging. Now, apart from my chronic illness, I'm 64 years old. I don't have pain in my body, right? I don't have the normal things associated with aging, And I actually consider myself to be a very healthy, chronically ill person. And I take exquisite care of myself, Mm. right? So I'm very well fed, very well nourished, as rested as I can be. My energy is my gold and I spend it very wisely. So I would say probably genetic factors, definitely leaky gut, and definitely the stress of that. Yeah, we had a microbiologist on the podcast uh, about a month ago who said that the evidence is coming through that stress can have a bigger impact on leaky gut than any of the any format of diet. So yeah. there's no doubt about it. Well, there's plenty for us to uh, continue to work on in our respective fields. Thank you so much, Kerry. Uh, and just finally leave us with how someone can get hold of you if they want to set up a discovery call. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Ben. They can head over to my website, which is emotionalautoimmunity.com. If you want to listen to me talking more about specifics of the emotional issues, the Emotional Autoimmunity Podcast, so it's on all podcast players, people can search and subscribe. And if they want some practical help, right, at my website, emotionalautoimmunity.com, if you sign up to be part of my email community, you will get my grief model. So I've created a specific grief model that is going to basically take you by the hand and walk you through every single emotion you can experience from pre-diagnosis to acceptance and and beyond. Because like I said, it's a constantly evolving process. Um, So there's lots of really good, valuable information there for people to have. All right. Wonderful. Thanks so much. And all the best with your business. And of course, more importantly, all the best with your health. It's been lovely to meet you like this. And thanks for sharing and um, we had a really, uh, uh, you know, personal conversation there. So I appreciate that as well. Thank you, Kerry. Thanks. Thanks so much, Clint. It's been great. Really love talking to you. Thanks for listening to Rheumatoid Solutions. If you'd like to get more help to live an easier, healthier, and happier life, visit rheumatoidsolutions.com.